Do you remember your first cell phone? I do. It was the early 2000s, and it could basically only make calls and play snake. <laughs> yeah. I, I, had this, uh, I had this little sweet silver flip phone. Oh, it was magical. It had that little like green screen and the blacky black text and that funny little plastic extendable antenna that did not do actually anything. I'm convinced it was not a real thing. <laughs> like, But my folks got it for me at the end of my freshman year of college because everybody was already using cell phones and had them. And I was the only one. I was still, I was using calling cards in 2003 <laughs> that's like that's what that's what i was doing okay i was like using calling cards or uh like a uh like a pigeon <laughs> to, to like uh, to talk with my family i didn't use calling cards but i i didn't use my cell phone that much um i basically ended up using my parents landline or uh, instant messenger because I had almost no minutes. Oh, and yeah, the minutes. I'm pretty sure if memory serves that my mom had to pay for every text I sent and received. So I pretty much only used my phone for emergencies, which was a bummer because I really wanted to use my new phone. Right. Yeah. No, totally. I, 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 I'm right there with you. Like the first day I got it, I was like, it was like a kid at Christmas or something, like a, like a new toy. Right. And I was checking it out. I was flipping it open and closed and I was totally like fiddling with it. Um, and I wasn't super aware in that moment because, well, I was 18. And so I just wasn't super aware of anything besides like, like trying to smuggle cheap beer into my dorm room. But, <laughs> but the way that I um, communicated with the world was about to drastically change because of that little goofy silver flip phone. You know, okay, so picture this, like first day of freshman year, I'm setting up the answering machine on my dorm room phone. And then at the end of my senior year, I'm texting people as my primary communication, you know, like that's weird, man. That is a little wild. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, for me, the way I interact with the world is really different too. It's not just how I communicate. I use GPS all the time. I listen to podcasts all the time. I'm constantly Googling things. That's what I mean. Like we've got these like supercomputers in our in our pockets now, right? Um, and and I, even that, like I fought off getting a smartphone forever. And then I finally caved. But that was only like five years ago. And I remember trying to explain to my dad like texting and social media and email, you know, and he's like, this is just so stupid. Just call me, you know. And now today, my entire family, including my little baby nieces and nephews, are on this like family text feed. And that's how we communicate with each other daily. You know, that's weird. What do you think the response was when the caveman inventor of the wheel showed the rest of the tribe is this a joke or like the or like the light bulb like do you do you think when people first saw the light bulb they were like huh that's stupid over here candles edison you idiot oh, okay i guess you're not telling <laughs> you know a joke saying? no okay hear me mm -hmm. out i think there are some similarities between the reactions to new technology uh way back when like caveman edison okay. time uh and, not, and then not the what same happens time, by the way. it's now i uh, Neither of us are historians. We can't <laughs> prove that. So, but what happens inside my melon when I hear people talk about virtual reality is maybe the same thing that happened then. Like, 
what I know about virtual reality is, is zilch. You could fit it inside of a thimble, maybe. But when I hear about it, I immediately am like, like I kind of, I roll my eyes, right? And I file it under cheesy fad, right? right? But then Sarah Steele told me about what she thinks VR can do. I believe VR can help protect our environmental future. How the hell does new beep bop boopin' technology save the planet? Well, stick around. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakanu. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. So I grew up in, in Geneva in Switzerland, which is down the road from, um, from Chamonix, which is an incredible, as, as most climbers know, this like haven of, of alpine climbing. Um, and my stepdad was a... Kind of kind of famous. <laughs> kind of famous. I'm just saying in case some people don't know. My, my stepdad was a mountain guide and we, we used to climb together a lot. And he, um, I remember going to Chamonix with him and he would tell me, about how back in the 80s, the glaciers used to come all the way to town and they would like, you know, pick off like some ice for their cocktails in the evening, like straight off the glacier, just off the road in town. And now these glaciers are several kilometers. They've receded significantly. Um, And like, that was kind of the first spark of like, he gave me this, this love of the mountains and particularly alpine climbing. Well, and how old were you? It was actually late in my teens. I'd say I was about eighteen. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't super, super early. Um, but you know, ever since I've been a small kid, we've we've ventured sort of off the beaten path and and uh-huh. spent a lot of time in Utah and in Canyonlands, where he would teach us about how like fragile these environments were and how you know any footstep in the desert basically just doesn't go away for you know hundreds of years sometimes. So it sounds like mostly it's it's like what really. Rather than like it being this like environmentalism thing that that really kind of sparked in you first, it was probably more of like just a general love and connection for the outdoors and, and the mountains specifically. You know, growing up in Geneva, there's about 400 nonprofits that are based in Geneva. And so as a kid, I was just surrounded with people that were working for the International Red Cross, like working for the International Labor Organization, working uh-huh. with refugees, um, you know, working on ocean acidification. And so you get you you start to understand the the breadth of causes that are out there and i've always had this this kind of thought in the back of my mind that you always have to be working on some kind of greater good sarah went to the university of geneva where she studied international relations she graduated in 2008 and then worked in freelance consulting for a while she moved to the luxury industry for a bit neither really struck a chord with her then in 2012 sarah landed an administrative job at google she was psyched, but that first gig fizzled out over the course of a year. But once you're in the Google, you're not going to leave the Google. I mean, since 2002, guess what company has nabbed the number one spot on Fortune's list of best companies to work for? The Google. Okay, so you're personifying Google and adding the in front of it now? Yeah, so. Anywho, <laughs> while Sarah was looking for a new gig, she was introduced to VR. I had a friend who was on this 
emerging virtual reality team, which was, you know, 20 people at the time. And he was like, hey, you know, come work on virtual reality. And I was like, no, I'm just not into that gaming stuff. And I like being outside. And I don't know about these weird headset things. Right. right. And uh, he was like, no, 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 I think you'll like it. And so they brought me in. Um, there's a very famous experiment in VR called the it's called the diving board. And it's where they they put you in a headset and they put you on a very, very high diving board at the edge of a swimming pool. And they ask you to walk forward and they ask you to step off. Um, and a lot of people can't do it. And so. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's actually check it out. It's if you Google it, you'll you'll find some stuff. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of people have, even though they know that they are in a virtual and thus not real environment, they, they can't step off the edge. And so after I tried that, I was like, oh my God, and my mind just kind of blew with the number of possibilities and things that we could potentially do with this technology. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And so I came on board as, as their first program manager. Can I talk to you a little bit about my personal understanding of VR, or at least the history I have yeah. with it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's start with Navy Pier in Chicago. Have you ever been to Chicago? I have, yeah. And when I was a kid, they had like when VR like came out. I feel like in the early '90s, they had virtual reality there, and it was this big like thing. If you were a kid, you could go there. But all I really remember of it is like stories of of the room like smelling like a like a like a carnival bathroom and like. Uh, like people like throwing up because like the VR made them sick and it was like super expensive and like my family was not about to spend like a hundred dollars. <laughs> I feel I feel like you guys got off to a bad start, but I feel um, I've been I've been misinformed about what VR is. <laughs> this is what I know of it. So, can you please tell me what virtual reality actually is? Yeah. So so VR. I think if if we break it down in its purest form, it's just like it's an immersive experience, right? So it is a it is a virtual version of reality, whether it's computer generated or whether uh -huh. it's been filmed with a camera. Um, so it's an immersive environment. In a complex state, it can be an interactive environment. So on top of you know visuals, you add interacting with objects. You can add you can overlay different things. So you have all kinds of virtual reality experiences. Some people call 360 video an interactive experience. Some people will tell you that you need to have this notion of depth. So you need to see in 3D in 360 in order for it to be virtual reality. I kind of like to just keep it simple and call it any, any experience that is immersive. And the yeah. more immersive it is, the better. The more it tricks your brain into thinking that you're somewhere else, the better. And okay. so... Some of the experiences that you're describing, um, you know, it's like it's it's technology, right? So it's it's getting more efficient. It's getting better. If you think about headsets and when you look into headsets, it's like, are you seeing pixels? Are the pixels really small? Obviously, like the smaller the pixels, the more real it feels. And like that's kind of what you're going for is, is environments that that feel very real, that teleport you in a way. Once Sarah said all of that, I had to see this VR stuff for myself. So I went and I infiltrated the Google. After the break, Patty heads to San Francisco. I took 
I took a cab to this <laughs> to this office building. And for some reason, I thought that the Google office building was just going to be like a um, giant white clean looking building. And it wasn't. It was brick. And, and this was in San Francisco, right? It wasn't their main campus in Mountain View? No, this is San Francisco, like right on the water. And it was super busy. Like people were in and out. There was a lot of people waiting. And so Sarah picks me up. Oh my God, welcome. Thank you very much. And then we go in to this room that has like foam on the ground and these green screen kind of covers on the walls in, in like the corner and like this huge computer set up a couple different monitors and then they put me inside the matrix like i get these like huge headset goggles put on and these two uh controllers okay so first thing oh my god first, i have no body. i know i shouldn't have told you that but like i just wanted to give you a headset <laughs> so, so then the first thing that we do is this like art demo and it was really cool because like typically you think drawing you're like okay i'm like sitting at a table and i've got a piece of paper but well with this i could i'm drawing in space like in front of me so like like think of like you have like a basketball in front of you and you're like holding it like that's the type of depth and space that i'm talking about okay so patty is writing his name in neon green and he put a smiley face of course hey, now, why do you walk into your Oh, okay. Walk forward. Oh. And he just walked through his name, which is floating in space. And why don't you draw... I could draw a square that would be floating in the air, and then the lines from each one of the corners of the square I could draw back and, like, make into a cube. And I could then shade the cube and, like, stick my hand all the way through it. And I could walk through everything that I drew. It was bonkers wild like after drawing we went to the bottom of the ocean i was standing on a shipwreck we're going underwater oh my god so patty is now underwater standing on a sunken ship and hanging out with some some fish a fish just buzzed my mustache dude oh my god look at the manta rays so he's staring up at the sun from the bottom of the ocean. And a fish. I'm like getting buzzed by fish. This is so And awesome, this was like dude. cartoony kind of looking, fishy. right? It wasn't blocky like The Sims, but it was cartoony looking. Like I knew that I was, I was standing in something that was generated by a computer, right? Yeah. But even still, like I was interacting with these fish. And then Sarah was like, hey, look behind you. And I turned around and there was this huge I, like, whale. Oh my God, it's a huge whale. <laughs> Dude. And mm -hmm. even though, again, like I look down, I have no body. I can't see my feet. I can't see my hands or anything. Um, but when it's uh, like little flipper, when it's fin comes near me, I ducked. And then when it's, when it's tail came near me and almost hit me, I ducked again. You know that you're inside of the computer, but you still feel like I felt like I was going to get hit. And even when I went to the the next program they took me through where I was like, you know, in, like flying above the high alpine desert and it kind of looked like Google Earth, you know, um, mm -hmm. or you, like the kind of satellite imagery. I was like, I could like point at something, pull the trigger on my right remote and then fly there. And then when I let the trigger go, I would stop, but I would stop very abruptly. And the first time that that whoa. happened, I almost fell uh, over. Whoa. Okay. He's flying. Every, anytime I point my control at something and then and then pull the trigger, I like can zap myself there and it gives me a very strange feeling. Like physically it feels like I'm like you fall like you fly very quickly and it is 
it's very it's super strange because my feet aren't it can moving anywhere but absolutely transform you to a place it can trick you into thinking that you're at this place and trick you into feeling something i think okay i'm All gonna right. be straight up with you guys yeah i was pretty skeptical this is some of the coolest shit I've ever done before in my entire life. You guys have really neat jobs. <laughs> awesome. Oh. I get VR now. And it's pretty clear to me that Sarah is super duper stoked on, on her work. But the stoke didn't really kick into high gear until a year after she started her current work. It was 2015 and... That's when she first became really, really aware of just how powerful the application of the technology was. I decided to go on a backpacking trip, actually a, a climbing trip to attempt a first ascent in, in Pakistan. And I ended up going with my climbing partner and, and new mentor, Christian, um, part of the reason because my stepdad, who was my climbing partner and mentor for many, many years, ended up um, having some back issues and had to get um, several rounds of surgeries and couldn't come on the trip. And as a matter of fact, like hasn't been climbing for several years, which has been a really difficult process. And so we were, we were on this trip. We're several weeks in. Mm -hmm. We're like halfway up this mountain attempting this first ascent. And we, were, we came to a point where we decided to, to turn around, actually, because we didn't have the right equipment. And uh, we were getting to this kind of dodgy part. Yeah. And so there was just this click in my head where all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, like, I want to bring this exact moment back home. Like, I want my stepdad to be proud of me for, you know, being here. And, and I'm like tearing up as I say this. And for like, yeah. you know, getting to the point where I got to. And I think that's the moment where VR like really clicked for me, where I was like, oh my God, like this, this is what he needs to see exactly as it is. And I think that the realm of memories is going to be huge. Like memories and taking you places that you can't go. I felt like I came back and I just had I just had a lot more direction and clarity on why I was doing things. It's just like it it just personally clicked for me. And what's been interesting with this technology is everyone I work with has a what we call a use case that is inspiring to them in some way. For some people it's mm -hmm. like I want to take everyone courtside at the basketball game and that's just their thing and like for some people it's gaming and for some people it's art because they want to paint in tilt brush and paint in 360 3d um so it's like everyone kind of has this little personal passion and and i found that really really cool shortly after that expedition sarah was struck by another bolt of inspiration and once again she was in an unlikely location i went to a bam film festival like world tour i think it was in berkeley or something and i had never been uh -huh. um and i'm watching all these films about like you know people people dropping on on kayaks and doing crazy ski lines. And like, I just walked out of there so pumped. And I was like, wait a minute, like, what if we took this content to the next level and just made it immersive? Like, right, what right. if we just literally took people to these experiences or brought them on these experiences in a much more immersive way? And it's just like, most of it is so stunning and exhilarating that like, to me, it's just, it's a natural fit. VR is one of these things, like it is being used for entertainment. There's some really great, pieces of artwork that are coming out of that. But with any budding technology, it's like <laughs> you can always have this this stance of like with 
with great power comes a great responsibility. And I Ooh, think Spider-Man, the, thank you so much for that. Spidey sense. <laughs> um, but I think it's just about like, because it's a budding industry, like people that are in the industry are responsible for steering it in the direction that it should go and where it does have positive impact. The uh-huh. applications that it has to either help you understand issues that are very complex or that are difficult to explain fully. Like, for example, if you think about ex- explaining like climate change or extinction, like these are things that take, they take a lot of time, right? So like right. most people don't walk around their daily lives thinking about like some animal going extinct or the fact that the planet is slowly heating up because they're not feeling it immediately. And so mm-hmm. I think immersive environments can help you like visualize those kinds of things. Um, you know, another application that I thought about for, for the environment is like, can we protect some places from foot traffic? Like I was just watching this piece on, on these tribes in the Amazon and like they don't want tourists going there. So like can you take tourists there without actually taking them there? It's like protecting certain places from foot traffic or just protecting them digitally so that there's an archive of them somewhere um, in case our wonderful humanity does not (laughs) fulfill its obligations. (laughs) You're creating like the seed storage of of these wonderful wild places. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I hope we never have to do that. But yeah, that's why we founded the program that we did last year. You started that at at Google. It's like a, a division of Google. It's uh, not quite a... What's it called? It's called Daydream Impact, and it's a program within Google's VR team. The purpose of the Daydream Impact program is to help activists and nonprofits use VR tech. Basically, Google is looking for storytellers and do-gooders who want to highlight a cause or an issue using VR. People who are selected are given training, an equipment loan, and production assistance to help their project come to life. You know, ex- VR is expensive, and, and I'm sure we'll get around to talking about, like, the, the, the pitfalls or, like, some of the, the downsides of this technology. But, like, it's, it's hard technically to make virtual reality content, and it's, it's also quite expensive. And so the program that we kicked off was, was aimed really at, like, democratizing the medium. Ooh, that is a cool phrase. <laughs> because basically everybody has a smartphone these days. So if you can generate virtual reality from a smartphone – then essentially you can put it into a lot of people's hands. And so that's when Google started having devices like Google Cardboard and then what we call the Daydream platform. And essentially this is what we call mobile VR. And so it it is basically using your cell phone to generate a VR experience. And then we invested in a number of projects. And the the criteria behind these projects was like, how can we help you think outside the box about using VR? Because like one of the things that people automatically think about is they're like, okay, we're just going to take a camera. We're going to put you in this place and you're going to feel empathy, right? (laughs) Right, right. That kind of has its <laughs> empathy. Li- yeah, <laughs> just just go. Lots of empathy, and like that has that has its <laughs> limitations. Is there a negative potential to VR? Um, you know, of course. Like I think with any any powerful technology, there are there are potential negative, um, you know, repercussions if people don't use it properly. It's like making sure that it's being used for the appropriate use cases, and that we're we're not locking people into headsets, and if they are checking experiences out in headsets like that it's it's the right ones and that they're elegant ways out of it and making sure that you are you know not getting completely bogged down uh in the technology like things like that and and what do you see is the pathway towards truly getting vr 
to be this kind of, at least if not the tip of the spear, a part of the spear of conservation and protecting our environmental future? I think for me, it's like getting it in the right places and getting the right people behind the technology. So getting, you know, researchers that have that have scientific data and backup and that know how to use this technology and and like ensuring that is it is accessible to people who want to learn about it, that it's not hard to get to a VR experience. And so that'll happen naturally as like, you know, hardware and technology get less and less expensive. Um, so to me, it's about both the the players getting a hold of the medium and feeling comfortable with it and feeling that they can that they can use it complementary to all the other great things that they're using and two it's about accessibility and like can people get their hands on this stuff like you know it's it's great that we're showing it at at really prestigious film festivals but can we also make sure that it's accessible in schools and at smaller film festivals and at museums and like I think to me that's where we're really going to break the barrier with it is is when it's it's used for the right applications in the right places and it's accessible. So do you have specific examples or like what are some of the projects that you've worked on that you feel have, have really helped conservation efforts? You know, it's, it's hard to say. And that's why in my statement I said that I believe VR can help our environmental future is because this is all still pretty new. Most of these projects kicked off last year. And so right. we're, getting, we're getting case studies back as we speak. Sarah isn't able to discuss the results of the case studies yet, but she is really, really optimistic about what they will reveal. You know, the stuff that I've seen that has worked really well is like, um, if you think about ocean acidification and coral bleaching, there were a few virtual reality pieces that came out along with, um, I think it was uh, one of the recent films, Chasing Coral had a VR experience. There's another VR experience called Chasing Ice, which is on the melting of the glaciers in Iceland. Um, You know, they've done these research where they show people like if you chop down a tree trunk, if you if you watch a redwood tree being cut down like in VR and you're standing there and you feel the vibrations and you're seeing it being cut and you like witness the whole thing, like you are less likely to use paper. Like they've done this type of research. Those are the applications that I find interesting. And, you know, some people will argue against that. Like obviously putting you somewhere doesn't provide you with context. You know, you're just living something for a few minutes. But nevertheless, I think it's like, we have this joke in, in my family when you, you place a, a bad piece of climbing gear, you call it a BTN, which is a better than nothing. And so, you know, <laughs> it's like definitely better than nothing. It's better than no experience. Right, right. I mean, it's like, it's like at least the first step. Exactly. Right? Um, and if we want to protect these places that we love so much, it is another means to shed light on them. You know, I heard one journalist say, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then then what is an experience worth? You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Sarah Steele. And just a heads up, pals, we're taking a short production break to interview more rad folks. If you want to suggest a guest, we'd love to hear from you. Head over to our website, safetythirdpodcast.com, or email us your guest suggestions and reasons why they are rad human beings at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. We'll be back in October with another 10 awesome episodes to finish out the year. Until then, follow us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast, and you can even find us on the Facebook thing and also the Twitter thing. 
Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Janaki Mehta. Music by my brother, yes, my big brother, Brendan Snarface O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, pals. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. <laughs>